0: Thank you, Charles. Uh, thank you to Camille and, and Kate Duvall, uh, and to the Student Bar Association uh, Diversity Committee. For those who uh, don't know me, I'm Kim Ford Mazrui, and I direct the Center for the Study of Race and Law. Let me also me, remind you to silence your phones. Uh, talking about Jefferson is always timely at the University of Virginia, uh, but it's especially uh, timely on this President's Day. Happy President's Day. And also, the Washington Post and New York Times both have had stories in the last two days about Jefferson and Sally Hemings and Monticello. So uh, the whole country is also uh, paying attention. Uh, I happen to be sight impaired, so I say that to explain why uh, Charles will call on uh, people during the Q&A so I don't miss you. It also means that my 20 pages of introductions won't take as long as that sounds, because they're in 60-point bold font. <laughs> uh, so I will introduce them in, uh, all at once, so we don't have to interrupt the flow, uh, and in the order from, from me going outward. So uh, closest to me is uh, Dr. Krista. Oh, no. She just told me. Dirk Saita? Close enough. OK. Um, uh, Dr. Seita specializes in the history of plantations in the age of revolutions with a special focus on Jefferson. She completed her Ph.D. at UVA in 2008. Her forthcoming book, Improving Slavery or Ending Slavery in Jeffersonian America, 1770 to 1840, interrogates planters' visions of progressive slave societies in Virginia, South Carolina, and British Caribbean. Since 2006, she has written exhibitions for Monticello, including uh, The Boisterous Sea Sea of Liberty and The Landscape of Slavery, Mulberry Mulberry Row at Monticello. She is also co-author of Thomas Jefferson's Worlds, the introductory film at at Monticello. Currently, she teaches in the UVA History Department and works at Monticello's International Center uh, for Jefferson Studies. Next to her is Kurt Von Dack, who is a Professor and Assistant Dean of UVA's History Department. Additionally, he is co-chair of the UVA's uh, President's Commission on Slavery and the University. Uh, Von Dack's research centers upon social construction of race, community, social hierarchies, and identity in 18th and 19th century America. He studies the complex. Uh, interplay of race and culture in the Antebellum South. His first book, Freedom Has a Face, uh, Identity and Community in Jefferson's Albemarle, 1780-1865, to 1865, came out with UVA Press in 2012. He has also uh, been researching a second book-length project uh, examining the history of a 19th century interracial island fishing community in coastal Maine. Uh, And then uh, third from my right is uh, Professor Claudrina Harold, who is a UVA professor of African-American and African Studies and History. In 2007, she published her first book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Garvey Garvey Movement in the Urban South, 1918 to 1942. In 2013, the UVA Press published The Punitive Turn, New Approaches to Race and Incarceration, a volume uh, Harold co-edited with Deborah McDowell and Juan Battle. Her latest book is The New Negro Politics in the Jim Jim Crow South. As a part of her ongoing work on the history of black student activism at UVA, Harold wrote, produced, and co-directed with Kevin Everson two short films, Sugar Coated Arsenic and We Demand. Uh, Both films have screened at numerous international film festivals in the U.S. and abroad. And last but far from least, Professor Noelle Hurd is a professor in UVA's psychology department. Her research is primarily focused on the promotion of healthy adolescent development among marginalized youth. Specifically, her work focuses on identifying opportunities uh, to build on pre-existing strengths in youth's lives, such as supportive intergenerational relationships. She runs the Promoting uh, Healthy Adolescent Development Lab at UVA and is a current William Grant Scholar and Spencer National Academy of Education postdoctorals fellow. Following the 2016 presidential election, Professor Hurd drafted an open letter to UVA President Teresa Sullivan in hopes of starting a conversation uh, about the manner in which we moralize Thomas Jefferson. So as you can see, we have a wonderful esteemed panel, and join me in welcoming them. Do you want to sit here or at the podium, your choice?
1: Hear me? Oh. You can. So again, I'm Krista Dierksaiti. I'm a historian at Monticello. Um, But I wanted to start by um, also saying that I was an undergraduate at UVA more than 15 years ago now. And um, as I was thinking about the legacies of Jefferson, I was thinking about the way that Jefferson was presented when I was in college here. And I would say there was really only one legacy. And that was as Jefferson as a hero. Um, but I think what I want to do in my role on this panel, and I should say that it's both a pleasure and a pl- privilege to be on this panel with these fellow panelists, um, with our moderator, and with you all in what I hope to be uh, a wonderful dialogue and discussion about this important topic. But I really want to interrogate this idea of legacy. Um, I want to Pick it apart a little more, um, and I want to suggest that there are really two ways that we think of Jefferson's legacy right now. This is pretty close. Um, one, and I think the dominant uh, way that Jefferson has been perceived has been as a hero. Right, he's a hero of the founding generation, someone to be admired and lionized. Um, But there's also a second legacy, and I think this has become increasingly important um, in the past few years, and that is that he's a hypocrite, Um, the author of the iconic words in the Declaration of Independence, but also a lifelong slaveholder. And this is a guy who needs to be kind of knocked off of his pedestal and marginalized uh, as a deeply flawed human being. And I think right now we see these two legacies in zero-sum terms, right? We either embrace one or the other. Um, And often that reflects our values and maybe even our political leanings. Um, But I'd like to suggest that these two legacies are reflective of something even deeper. I think they're reflective of two very different narratives about American history. I think the legacy of Jefferson as a hero um, as this sort of fa- you know, founding father um, is a narrative of American history as declension. So in other words, Jefferson was great. He was a founding father in this kind of golden age in American history. And this is what we need to return to. We need to return to first principles. Uh, we need to be great again. The legacy of Jefferson as a hypocrite offers a very different narrative of American history and I think that's one of gradual improvement between the founding era and today. In other words, Jefferson got it wrong, but we are getting it right. We've come a long way since slavery, and the past is a distant past. But I think what's interesting um, in looking at these two n- narratives in the context of this new national dialogue on race is that neither of these Legacy narratives reflect that. And what I mean by that is that the new movement focused on race and the legacy of slavery suggests neither a narrative of progress or declension, but of stasis, of things staying the same. The movement suggests that racism has been institutionalized in America for centuries, that race relations are not actually getting better. This movement also suggests that there have been three institutions in American history, three main institutions, I would say, that have perpetuated racism and oppression. And those institutions are slavery. And some of you may know slavery by its euphemistic uh, definition as the peculiar institution. Uh, The second institution is Jim Crow and the era of segregation. And the third, and this is getting Even more play in the media right now is mass incarceration. We know that this new national dialogue on race is a call to action, but I think it's also a call to history. It's a call to a better history, to a more accurate history of slavery and its legacy in this country. And I think Jefferson needs to be a part of that story. Or even more importantly, It's Jefferson's declaration that needs to be at the beginning of that story. Our American Creed, authored in 1776, which we still, as Americans, hold dear, I think, did three really important things. Number one, it created this nation out of 13 backwater colonies in the New World. It created a single American people from what were disparate colonists. Number two, it declared that everyone within this nation was created equal, could enjoy equal rights and privileges. But number three, and I think this is a a component that we don't talk about widely, is that Africans, whether free or enslaved, could never be a part of that nation. And this last point has deep implications for the history of this country, I think. I think institutions like Monticello and UVA have run into kind of a problem. And that is that we've tried to tell two legacies of Jefferson. We've tried to tell two stories simultaneously. One is that Jefferson was this kind of hero, founding father, and the other that he was a slaveholder. At Monticello, we've tried to tell both stories simultaneously since the 1990s. And the real catalyst for this was in 1993, which was the 250th anniversary of Jefferson's birth. It was in that year that we began offering not just house tours focused on Jefferson, but slavery tours centered on Mulberry Row, the main plantation street on the mountain that is just yards from Jefferson's bedroom. Uh, We did this in part because we'd been studying slavery for decades, and we had so much information from archaeology, from documentary evidence, from historians' work. We also started getting word, the African American Oral History Project, which to date has interviewed over 200 descendants of enslaved families at Monticello. We know the names now because of that work of 607 enslaved people, We know their families. We know their work. But I think what we've realized now is that we can't tell the story of Jefferson and the story of slavery separately. They have to be the same story. In other words, slavery can't be the ancillary story. It needs to be the main story. And I've heard um, in some segments in the media that, you know, Mount Vernon, Monticello, um, they're including the stories of the enslaved. But that's not enough. We need to create a narrative, a legacy of Jefferson, that includes everything, but doesn't include pieces of this story as add-ons. So I think what we're realizing now is that we need to change our narrative. We need to come up with a legacy of Jefferson's that's not either or, that it's a story that includes visionary principles, but also the tragic realities of slavery. We need to make Jefferson and slavery the same story. We need to show visitors that African-American history is American history. We need to show visitors that we have a shared past as a country, that you can't just cherry-pick what you want to be your past to be. We need to show Monticello as a place to understand America, a place to see America at its best and at its worst. We need to show Monticello as a site of reflection, and even a site of mourning, but also as a catalyst, a place to inspire our visitors to take action in our own society. And in entering this national dialogue on race, in embracing the legacy of slavery and race in this country, we have a challenge, I think. We have an opportunity, and we have an obligation to bring the lessons of history forward and shape a better future for our society. Thank you. Fantastic. Is
2: this working? Doesn't uh-huh. it? Did you turn
0: it
2: on? I have to, I have to turn it on, yeah. Okay, there we go. Better? Yes. So uh, this is kind of a perfect handoff. Um, I think it's funny that you mentioned the plantation tour. Back when I was an undergraduate, I, I was, I was a was pla- <laughs> You just set me up. So I did the plantation tour and uh, interpreted history at Monticello in that kind of weirdly segregated landscape you were talking about. I'm here today to speak to you. I think really less about Jefferson than more about the University of Virginia. Um, Jefferson's role is in the designing and founding of the university, but he dies within a year of the opening of the university. So, the story I'm going to talk about is the first 50 years of the university, and this kind of we, we leave Jefferson behind. But I'll, I'll start with a little context, and this is building on what uh, Professor Dirk Scheider just shared with you. Thomas Jefferson was born into one of the most important slaveholding colonies in British colonial North America in the 18th century. He came of age in the state of Virginia, the single largest and most important slaveholding state in the United States. He owned over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, most of whom lived and worked here in Albemarle County. This was a county that was a center of significant slaveholding. He freed only a handful of those people in his will. He also created the vision for and designed what would become this very university we sit at today, the University of Virginia. His vision was in some ways an expansive one, right? It reshaped both public and higher education in the United States in profound profound ways. But this was a white male democratic educational experiment. It was brought to paper reality with the help of other central Virginia slaveholders, James Madison, James Monroe, John Hartwell Cock, and Joseph Carrington Cabell in particular. Yeah, it's America's first enlightened university, a university without religious affiliation, and a public school, But this was slaveholding Virginia. Of course, its construction would involve enslaved laborers. Of course, enslaved people would maintain the school. When the university was officially chartered in 1819, over half the population of this county was enslaved. Over 10,000 people in Albemarle alone enslaved in 1819. It should not be surprising that slavery is literally woven into the design of the Academical Village, And those trapped in human bondage were critical to every day in the university's history through 1865. But I think that fact is often surprising to people visiting the university today. Because that history at UVA, as experienced, is something that's kind of hidden in plain sight. And that's, I think, what part of my job on this commission is to do. So starting in 1817. Enslaved people in the dozens begin working on preparing the area for building. The, the original academic village is built on an abandoned farm, so enslaved people are hired, and I'm going to talk about this as we continue, clear the land, level the ground, terrace the ridge line. By the early 1820s, the number of enslaved people working at the university grew to, as best we can tell, as many to 30 or 50 or more yearly. We cannot determine exact numbers because the university tapped into a fully commodified rental market in human beings. So the university rented people with the money going to the owners or slave hiring agents, corporate middlemen, not to the enslaved. They come from a wide geographic area, some, sometimes coming from perhaps as far as 70 miles away, maybe even more. The university also rented humans for as little as a few days or as long as a full year. Wh- whatever they thought they needed, they could go out on this market and collect them. This rental system was not one that was good for the enslaved, shocker. They were ripped from homes and families and marched long distances to work temporarily at UVA. The university provides, according to contract, subsistence living for them, but that's about it, and it wasn't much of a subsistence. To give you an example, in 1820, after renting several people from a man named Pallison Boxley, who lived not quite to Richmond, but almost to Richmond, The university returned these folks. They had been living and working here for a year. While they were here, according to contract, the university provided them with winter clothing. It was March, and unlike our weirdly unseasonal weather we're having now, uh, I imagine this was probably a cold and blustery March. The university was done extracting labor from them. The university kept their clothes. We're pretty sure they marched back, possibly in chains, with little or no clothing back to the Richmond area. I think this is kind of a common experience as we talk about hiring. During this period, the enslaved dig foundations, dig up clay, shape bricks, run the kilns firing the bricks, move bricks. I know there's lots of bricks here, give you an idea. About a million bricks went into building the rotunda alone, so this is a massive story. They did roofing work, carpentry, stonemasonry, you name it. They did anything and everything, from the most backbreaking general labor to even highly skilled work. The labor force during construction is largely male. As construction winds down after 1826, the university rents fewer people. Maybe at that point, 8 to 10 in a typical year from that point on. But whenever there's construction or a special project that demands more labor, the number spikes back up. But even though the university as an institution is renting fewer people, the number of enslaved people living and working on grounds does not go down. Instead, it grows. So when the university opens in 1825, to a class of about 60 students initially, there were 90 to 150 enslaved people living at the university. And this is at just the old Academical Village. I don't know what was over here at the law school. Um, Again, those people were owned or rented by the university, the proctor, the professors, and the hotel keepers. From that point on until 1865, there were always 100 or more enslaved people on grounds, growing food, tending livestock, harvesting and slaughtering, preparing meals, serving in dining halls, washing dishes, washing clothes, shining shoes, delivering firewood, delivering ice, cleaning everything, and continuing to do painting and repairs as needed, and tending to literally every whim of the students. In this period, the enslaved included men, women, and children, so it's a less gender imbalanced group of people living and working here. Albemarle County is home to over 10,000 enslaved people during this time and a few hundred free people of color. They too worked for low wages at the university from the first days of construction on. So they were free and had basic economic rights and kind of came to the university It offered urban promise in a very rural landscape. University administrators as soon as they got here again were willing to pay them their wages but then realized they had a problem. This white male democratic experiment was filled with people who weren't white, and they, and they didn't know who they belonged to. So the university hired an overseer to surveil and control the enslaved and ordered the janitor to police the grounds. Students, meanwhile, routinely visited the worst kind of violence imaginable upon the enslaved, vicious beatings, rape, you name it. If you walk around grounds today, you have to look hard to see traces of the life and labor of the enslaved. It is that fact that drove students to do something different. And I think this is important even for you in law school, right, you drive institutions. So if you want to make, you can be the agents of change. Students formed a student organization, the Memorial for Enslaved Laborers, and began consciousness-raising efforts in 2009. Their hard work, along with pressure from some alumni, led to the creation of this commission I now co-chair. We have worked steadfastly to do a lot more than simply acknowledge UVA's past entanglement in human bondage. And I I love what Professor Dirkshatter was saying about that you you have to tell both stories simultaneously. And we've had a lot of help from Monticello and Montpelier and other historic sites in imagining how we do this as we play catch up. And we're seeking to reinscribe that history and the life stories of the the enslaved back onto the landscape so that their lives in that story become part of the story we all organically tell about the school. We've also further sought to initiate a process of reconciliation. Full-blown acknowledgement is very important, but it's a process. It requires far more than a simple apology or statement of regret, but it's just the beginning. So I'm gonna now just try to walk you through what have we all been doing in, in uh, attempting to fulfill that so, I think it relates to how we think about Jefferson. We must acknowledge fully the way slavery, slaveholding, and white supremacy shaped this university, just as we much acknowledge the same about Jefferson. So, what does it entail for the commission? First, a major research project pouring over thousands and thousands of pages of university records. If I ever see another accounting ledger from the university, it will be uh, way too soon. <clears throat> student diaries, faculty diaries, letters, the like, you name it. Collecting scattered references to the enslaved. There's lots and lots of information, but it tends to be opaque. It is required seeing the university as a community, not just as students and faculty, but as everyone. Students, staff, faculty, administrators, townspeople, county residents. We're all part of one big community, right? UVA is not walled off or separated from the rest of the community, and this is painfully evident as you look at the early university records. So we've spent three years doing our best to reach out to the community, listening to them, inviting them to the table to help us craft a vision of acknowledgement and reconciliation that is hopefully mutually satisfying. So what have we done? That's a lot of talk. Well, we have a website, a little plug here, slavery.virginia.edu. This is a website that's transparently sharing all the work in acknowledging this history In engaging with the community and developing brick-and-mortar projects that make this history once again again, visible. We have restored the African-American cemetery, installed interpretive signage, and held a major commemoration and libation honoring those buried there. We held a national symposium on universities studying slavery. We created a consortium of other universities either studying their own pasts or considering doing so. And uh, much like Monticello has been in the news lately, you've probably been following Columbia, Georgetown, et cetera. They have all either been spurred to do this work or have gladly joined the consortium. We're up to 23 schools now. We named Gibbons Hall after two people held in bondage here. This is an undergraduate dormitory on Alderman. We have helped with naming a new building coming in April. This is Skipwith Hall, named after Peyton Skipwith, an enslaved artisan once owned by John Hartwell Cock. We worked with the Office of the Architect to redesign the new Rotunda Visitor Center, making sure that this story of the life and labor of the enslaved is woven into the story we tell. So I'd love to hear what you think if you visit it. We've created a walking tour with audio of the sites of enslavement around grounds. The maps are available in the Rotunda Visitor Center, and there's a version online. We've created a a curriculum complete with an American Studies class called Slavery and Its Legacies that is taught by over a dozen professors from across grounds. We are also working on an advanced seminar that will debut in the next year or two. We've held dozens of of events on grounds and in town about our work and findings. We have a book in development on slavery in place at UVA that we hope to have out in time for the bicentennial in 2019. We have a full report that will be going to the president this fall. We have created a, we're creating another major symposium on universities and slavery that will kick off this fall. And last, we have a summer camp for high school students to come study at UVA and learn about slavery and its legacies here. And we're designing a memorial. We'd love your input. So I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dean Van Dyck and uh, Professor Harold. Uh,
3: good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, Happy uh, Black History Month, too. It's interesting to have this conversation about Jefferson during Black History Month, and uh, I've been thinking a lot about Malcolm, of course, this week. So for the past decade, uh, I've been teaching the second half of the introductory course to African American and African Studies here at the university. Thus, at the beginning of every spring, I have my students read three important documents. Uh, the first thing that I have them read is the 1969 proposal for an African-American and African Studies program here. One, because I think it's very important that you understand the history of the space that you inhabit. Second thing I have them read is um, Vincent Harding's classic 1974 uh, article, The Vocation of the Black Scholar. And lastly, I have my students read a chapter from Manny Marable's book, Ebony Dispatches. In that chapter, Marable talks about the formation of black studies and its rootedness in the black intellectual tradition. And when he talks about the black intellectual tradition, he says that the black intellectual tradition has been described or been defined, excuse me, by three hallmarks. One is descriptive. Two is corrective. And three is prescriptive. In focusing on the corrective dimension of black intellectual life, Manny Marable wrote this, it is attempted to challenge and to critique the racism and stereotypes that have been ever present in the mainstream discourse of white academic institutions. Our intellectual tradition has vigorously condemned and disputed theories of black people's genetic biological and cultural inferiority. It has attacked the distorted representation of blackness found in the dominant culture. It has challenged Eurocentric notions of aesthetics and beauty that all too often are grounded in an implied or even explicit contempt for the standards of blackness. A number of black intellectuals throughout American history have done this type of corrective work, including but not limited to David Walker, Frederick Douglass, uh, the great anti-lynching activist Ida B. Wells, and of course uh, my hero W.B. Du Bois. One of the targets of many of these intellectuals was Thomas Jefferson and his notes on the state of Virginia. The notes on the state of Virginia, in the notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson posited that African Americans were inferior to whites in both body and mind. In his analysis of African Americans' intellectual and artistic abilities, Jefferson wrote, comparing them by their faculties of memory, reason, and imagination, it appears to me that in memory they are equal to the whites, in reason, much inferior, and that in imagination, They are dull, tasteless. Although Jefferson publicly stated his support for gradual emancipation, he insisted that free blacks would have to leave the state of Virginia due to the inability of whites and blacks to reconcile what he saw as monumental cultural, political, and intellectual differences. He notes, deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites, 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries they have sustained, new provocations, the real distinctions which nature has made and in many other circumstances will divide us into parties and produce convulsions which will probably never end in the extermination of the one or the other race. As we sit here, we need to understand that we live in a world that Thomas Jefferson could not imagine. That also has to be the basis by which we begin to come at his utility. Published in 1784, notes on the state of Virginia elicited outrage from a variety of African-American intellectuals and leaders, including Benjamin Banneker, who insisted that his own achievements proved the fallacy of Jefferson's claims on the intellectual and moral inferiority of African Americans. In response to the contents of notes, Banneker chided Jefferson and other framers of the Declaration of Independence for that word, for their hypocrisy, in quote, detaining by fraud and violence, so numerous a part of my brethren under growing captivity and cruel oppression that you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act, which you professedly detested in others with respect to yourselves. Relying on Jefferson's own words from the Declaration, and that is a critical part of the black intellectual tradition, the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, Banneker challenged Jefferson and his fellows and his colleagues to quote, wean yourselves from those narrow prejudices which you have imbibed with respect to people of African descent. As Annette Gordon-Reed notes, Banneker's letter can be seen as the beginning of African-American's formal political and personal engagement with Thomas Jefferson, save for his own slaves who always engaged him personally. Banneker was quite right, she continues, to seek Jefferson out and challenge him on his contradictory presentations. Throughout the 19th century, African-American thinkers recognized the importance of not just critiquing Jefferson in private, but critiquing Jefferson in public. As David Walker noted in his classic text appeal, for let no one of us suppose that the Refutations which have, written by, have been written by our white friends are enough. They are whites, we are blacks. We and the world wish to see the charges of Mr. Jefferson refuted by the blacks themselves according to their chance. For we must remember that the whites have written respecting this subject is other men's labor and did not emanate from the blacks. There's a certain kind of work that David Walker understands that African-Americans must do. Though this was, in many ways, a mic-dropping moment, David Walker would not have the last word on Jefferson. In fact, Jefferson remained a subject of intense conversation for black thinkers. He also remained, for black thinkers, very much a source of, I think, intellectual inspiration. Uh, If I had a dollar for every time I stood in class and quoted I cringe when I think that God is just and his justice cannot, cannot sleep forever. Um, I wouldn't be here right now be rich. <laughs> so Jefferson is extremely important. Once again, to quote Gordon Reed, of all the revolution, he has a complex relationship, I think, to the African-American community. To quote Gordon Reed again, of all the revolutionary founders, Thomas Jefferson has figured the most prominently in Black's attempts to constitute themselves as, as Americans. His life in public and private has long served as a vehicle for analyzing and critiquing the central dilemma at the heart of American democracy. The desire to create a society based on liberty and equality runs counter to the desire to maintain white supremacy. I don't deny the importance of Jefferson, but I must admit at times at the University of Virginia I have Jeffersonian fatigue. Um, on both sides. Um, I got here from Notre Dame, and I thought Notre Dame had tradition, and I was like, ooh, this is some other. Uh, uh, at times I, I, I get fatigue, you know, on both sides. Um, and One of the things that I would like for us to think about is, what are the politics and what are the dangers when Jefferson always becomes our entry point to talk about race? What are the dangers and what are the politics when we begin the story of race during the enslavement period and stop in 1865 and don't continue to the present? I'm very happy about all of the universities and their you know, desire to talk about slavery. I think that's very important. But another question I have is how do we understand that within the context of a moment when black student enrollment is declining at state universities across the nation? How do we understand this attempt to embrace and deal with the past when black students engaged in protest over the past three years, and it brought us postdocs, a few more black faculty, but not all of the demands that black students articulated, What does it mean to talk about slavery and the reality of slavery when we don't want to talk about the reality of black labor on some of these college campuses? And so Uh, I am very committed to looking back at the past but I also want us to kind of think about the ideological work and the political work that goes with that looking back. Um, For the past five, six years uh, I've been studying the history of African Americans at UVA and really building on the work of a lot of folks. Um, I always say it's easy to do this work because I stand on the shoulders of other folks who've done it before. And I think we could all um, attest to the fact that UVA has been the leader in some of this intellectual work for a long time. Some of that work has not been adequately recognized, um, but but folks are doing the work. Um, but I look at the post, post-1964. And to be perfectly honest with you, I've entered moments where. I think people would be a lot more comfortable talking about 1834 uh, than 1974, or 1984, or 1994. And so in this moment of commemoration, in this moment when I think sometimes we want to have these conversations to prove the perfectibility of the American Democratic Project. And then sometimes in these moments where all we have is really peer institutions trying to compete with other peer institutions, we have to really begin to think about this project of reclamation. So I think this is very important. Uh, Jefferson is a central figure. I don't think you can do African-American and African studies without engaging Jefferson. He's messy. He's complex. But you know what all biographical figures are. Writing the history on African-American gospel music now, And I cringe every time that I turn on the radio because I don't know what's going to happen. That's part of doing biography. That's part of doing history. you got to deal with the messiness. you got to deal with the complexities. And you also have to deal with the questions that you can't answer. Um, But I also think this is an important moment. And I would encourage us to kind of think about this moment that we're in and think about the politics um, of writing history. I'm just going to close with a quote. I'm beginning to read this book called um, "The Price for the Their um, The Price of Their Pound of Flesh: The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation," and it's a book written by Dinah Barry. And she has this quote in the introduction that's just really moving to me. The book is about the political economy of slavery and the political economy and the commodification of black bodies. And she says this. This book is written in a historical moment that historians have not yet named, a moment when black persons are disproportionately being killed and their deaths recorded. I will leave you just with this question, too. What does it mean to engage Jefferson, and what does it mean to look back in this uh, political and historical moment?
0: Thank you, Professor Harold and uh, Professor Hurd.
4: OK, wow. <laughs> I don't know why um, Kim asked me to go last, and now I'm even wondering why I was invited to be on the panel. Uh, I'm not a historian, and I can't add anything. Um, I think that's anything better in terms of the historical context or the questions that are being posed by my esteemed colleagues. Um, I'm. Still, kind of trying to process some of those suggestions and questions myself. Um, I think, you know, I was invited in the context, I think, of um, a letter um, that I drafted and almost, I think, about 500 members of the community signed. And I'll, I'll speak briefly about that and kind of the context of that. And I think um, while I'm not the historian, no. What I can bring is the perspective of a newer member of the community um, and I think that might resonate with especially students or others. Um, I'm also from the Midwest, I think um, kind of that uh, perspective and and moving myself into this context and what that's been like. Um, And as a person who's a member of multiple uh, marginalized groups, I think, being able to think a little bit more, uh, both from personal experience, but also kind of generalizing that to what I imagine other members of our community might experience when they come into this space. And uh, I I really like Claudrina's last point in terms of thinking about what do we, what can we learn from Jefferson and how can having these difficult conversations that, that all of the panelists have been talking about really be important in the current context. Um, So I think that's how that ties into um, the letter, the open email that was drafted and kind of my motivations for doing that. Um, I guess even prior to that, I mentioned coming from the Midwest and it was challenging for me. Um, I was interviewed here. I was um, highly recruited at many different universities, um, many in in locations that might've felt more comfortable for me. I uh, hadn't lived in in Virginia, didn't have family here, and um, even being on this campus and kind of the colonial nature um, of the architecture was, was kind of um, difficult for me. It was a difficult space to be in. It was a, a difficult kind of reckoning with history in a way that hadn't been as personal for me prior to being here. Um, and I, I, one of the points that I wanted to make in the communication with uh, President Sullivan had to do with the fact that I mentioned that some of us, some members of the community came here maybe primarily because of Jefferson's legacy, but others of us came here in spite of it. And, and that was a really personal point for me, and that's one that I, I have actually had many conversations with colleagues and students. Um, I recruit students all the time. Oftentimes I recruit students from underrepresented backgrounds. And this is something that I'm contending with, not just in my decision to come, but in my Attempts to persuade really top students from all over the country to come here and study with me and work with me Um, And so, you know, it was really uh, the amazing colleagues that I have um, Who were so smart and so kind in my interactions with students and and those have all been true to form uh, since I arrived I've been very impressed with so many things about this university and um, Thomas Jefferson's legacy was not driving motivation. In fact, it was something that I really um, had to gave me pause. It was something that, that made me unsure if this was a place that I wanted to be, if this was a place that I could be comfortable. And, and what I decided when I came was that I would try and see this as an opportunity to have difficult conversations. That you can't be in this space and say that slavery didn't happen. You can't be in this space and not have these conversations. That's that's the way that I kind of came to terms with this. So I said, you know, it's important to me, I, a lot of my research, my teaching has to do with talking about stru- uh, systematic and structural oppression. If we're in a space where we're coming to terms with that uh, in a more even way, then it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to continue to have these conversations to to kind of explore how that influences where we are situated currently. Um, and so I, I made that decision. And, and from arrival, I think when asked about Jefferson, my question was always, what about the paradox of liberty? Why you know, how are we making sense of that? What, why are we talking about him only in the context of his accomplishments? Um, not to say that there weren't any, but also to say that those don't negate the transgressions. And so I think uh, the earlier points that were made um, by my colleagues about needing to have the and, right? Here's the contributions, here's the ways in which Jefferson was helpful to advancing uh, certain groups, <laughs> but here's also how they were intentional in holding back other groups, and that is part of our history, that's part of the history of this university, and that's part of the history of our country. So I think that's an important point. Um, my, my initial uh, comments in the, in the email that, that must have resonated with many had to do with kind of referring to Jefferson or invoking him as a moral compass. And that I find particularly problematic, um, especially in the context of a couple of messages from our university president that were around the issues of unity and inclusivity um, in the context of a very divisive uh, election and the ways in which we were seeing acts of bigotry and bias on campus. Invoking Jefferson in that, or I've heard in the past in, in context specific to sexual assault, I don't understand how someone whose actions are inconsistent with the message that you're trying to portray is useful. I think, at minimum, it's counterproductive. Um, and at most, it's, it's, it's downright offensive, right? So I, I feel like, again, I'm trying to contend with being in a space that already kind of just feels oppressive just structurally, uh, and then having my administrator, who I think does mean well and is trying to be helpful and is trying to help the community come together in a difficult uh, time, uh, kind of forcing um, what feels like kind of an oppressive figure on me or suggesting that that's who I should be turning to right now. And I think for me that was particularly problematic. I had you know, conversations with many students who talked about feeling the same way, and I think that's what propelled me to... Uh, draft this open email and kind of want to begin a more open conversation so you know what's been hard since I've been here which hasn't been terribly long um, has been seeing a very one-sided portrayal of Jefferson and so I echo all of the recommendations made earlier that uh, what that suggests is you know not just that it's intellectually dishonest or that it it takes away from the ability of all of our students to engage in critical thinking, because I think it really is not uh, doing a service to any of us. Um, But more so, uh, another problem related to that is that the transgressions that he committed were against specific oppressed groups. And so when we don't talk about those, or when we suggest that those uh, aren't as important as his contributions, it's actually communicating kind of a callous, stance towards those groups it's saying well you know those people are of less value so the fact that he engaged in something that you know everyone did at his time means that it's not that big a deal and I find that um, horribly offensive and really problematic and I think that's the type of messaging that makes uh, certain members, maybe maybe many, you know, regardless of whether you're from a marginalized identity or not, I think that that's something that people can find really problematic. And so, you know, what I'm most interested in, I guess, where I see my contribution here in terms of thinking about Jefferson's legacy, this university, in the future, is that we are becoming an increasingly diverse society. Um, We are seeing issues of under-enrollment of a a range of groups, in particular African-Americans and Latinos in institutions of higher education. If we want to continue to be a leading institution of higher education, if we really want to be a place where we can recruit the best and brightest from all backgrounds, and I mean that in terms of students, faculty, and staff, We cannot make our primary brand Jeffersonian exceptionalism. I just feel like that fundamentally undermines messages of inclusivity and diversity. And, you know, as we're moving into this bicentennial space, I think that we have an opportunity to really think about what are all of the other. I came here in spite of Jefferson because there were so many other things that I really liked about this space. I love my students. I love my graduate students, my undergraduate students. I have amazing colleagues. I want to be in this space. I want to function in this space and be productive and contribute in a meaningful way. So why would we be doing anything to prevent individuals who have that interest and that ability and that motivation from coming into this space and flourishing? Um, So I think my recommendation really has to do with how can we, as an institution, deal with our history, and I think the other panelists have spoken to that much better than I can, deal with our history in an accurate and honest way, as that's both a service to all of us in terms of understanding our history and especially understanding how that might influence our present and our future, but also that in doing so and not relying so heavily on just a a one-sided view of Jefferson, we can also make this space so much better by pulling from people who may be put off from coming here because of that legacy.
0: Well, I think all the panelists proved why uh, they should be here. Uh, let's open it up to Q&A and uh, raise your hand high and Charles is gonna call on you. and. So I think it's just like objectively correct that we can't have a parallel history. they have to be one history, like uh, Dr. Dirkuscheiden was saying. But I think it's really complicated because all history is political and there's deep political implications for that. So I come from a place that prides itself on being the Union capital of North Carolina back in the Civil War. But I still <laughs> learned about the war and northern aggression, right? Like, there's a lot at stake in people's perceptions of themselves and their country Based on how we look at the history, so how we actually navigate that and present one history, and then a corollary question is: Isn't this a problem that's only associated with viewing history as like the great men of history? You know, if we de-emphasize people as like the end all, be all of an era, wouldn't that also fix some of this uh, problem? Obviously, you can't do that in Monticello in MVA, but like more
1: broadly. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: I guess. Um. Those are two great questions. Thank you. Um, and I'll, I don't know if my other panelists uh, would like to follow up on these, but I would encourage them to do that. Um, so the first question, yes. Telling an inclusive history, um, talking about Jefferson's legacies, um, plural, as mixed, um, as you know, uh, visionary principles and the reality and tragedy of slavery and racism um, is a tall task. Um, and I would say we're just thinking now about how we can do that best. I think some of it is altering visitors' perception of history. Um, we've talked about not starting our tours in the house, for example, and starting them on Mulberry Row, so that the story of slavery is the big story, right? And Jefferson's a piece of that, but it's not just his story, right? He's he's part of about 200 people that lived on a plantation that was eight square miles, right? And I think we've taken for granted you know, Jefferson's uh, presentation of himself as this kind of overarching patriarch who overlooked enslaved people, women, all of whom uh, were oppressed in one way or another by him. And I think we need to deflate that. Um, and we need to insert him as one being, in hundreds on this mountaintop. And I think getting at trying to tell that complete story is turning that story upside down. And starting with the story of slavery, starting with the voices of the enslaved. um, For example, I think we want to use uh, the five slave memoirs that we have, extant at Monticello, as a way in to the history of Monticello. Um, and I would also add that, that talking about slavery at institutions like Monticello was like the tip of the iceberg. And I think as Professor Harold um, alluded to this, we don't need to just talk about slavery. We need to talk about the era of segregation and Jim Crow. We need to talk about today. I mean, so it's got to be a narrative that runs throughout our history. It can't be just talking about slavery as a way to offer an honest, an inclusive story. Um, And the second point is that the question you posed is that, isn't this hard to do? Um, And I think it is. Uh, I have one colleague in the history department, Alan Taylor, who's uh, now won two Pulitzer Prizes, um, whose most recent book, American Colonies, is really, for him, a very personal, the culmination of a personal journey and how to tell American history from multiple perspectives and to portray it as a messy and violent and horrible process. Right, Nationhood is not a neat and venerated uh, process at all. Um, so I think we can take uh, cues from folks like Professor Taylor in how we present history as historians of early America and also in how we present history at institutions like Monticello and UVA.
0: And if anyone else wants to weigh in on the question, otherwise, we can going to jump.
2: Yeah. Just going to jump in quickly. I think at, at UVA, we, we're, we're not where Monticello is. We have to tell the story, right? That, that's the problem we have is I want to get us to the legacies. That's exactly the goal. But when we have students who can't find the first memorial to slavery at UVA, which is deeply problematic for a number of reasons, not only they're finding it, but how it's worded, um, we, we have a lot of work to do. And so I see it as we've got to make the, you, you've got to know the foundation. And that gets us to the point where we can move on to tell these other stories. But we're trying to do that in the, the courses that we've designed. Sure.
5: Sort of playing off of that, um, when I was an undergraduate student at UVA, I was also a member of the University Guide Service. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that members of the Guide Service, their primary role is to be the storytellers mm-hmm. of the university specifically. We gave tours, hundreds, thousands of tours every year, primarily historical tours of the African Village and the Rotunda. I know when I gave tours, I never gave one that did not include slavery and in African American mm-hmm. history in my tours, and I know that was not true of most guides. In fact, we gave special, dare I say, segregated tours about the history of African Americans yeah. specifically at the university without really integrating it into our overall tours. So it seems like there's a lot of progress happening at Monticello. I will say that all the times I've been to Monticello, I've seen a lot um, in terms of the discussion of slavery and African Americans at that institution, but much less translated to the university itself. I was wondering what type of progress has been made specifically with the guide service as stewards of history in that Mm. school. Um, to actually tell this story. I mean, it's great that we have the opportunity to hear about all this as law students. I mean, we are, as was mentioned before, agents of change. But I'm thinking particularly about the undergraduate population where all this is really happening.
2: So, well, the, as you know, right, the, one of the issues here is the University Guides are an independent student organization at a university dedicated to student self-governance. So we don't actually control them. But I, I, I want to... I I think even the segregated African American history tour you're talking about, right? It's a clumsy first step at acknowledgement. It's at least a tour, and I know in 2013 my comment to them was, "No, no, 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 no. This you have to tell this in all your tours. This just you just weave it into what you do." And so I I, I get the sense that there's been a lot of work on this, right? The the, the actual other than uh, an undergraduate paper, and an occasional graduate kind of master's thesis, the only sustained look at slavery at UVA was the pamphlet the U-Guides put together with a lot of help from faculty in 2013. Uh, I just had an email the other day about Thrimston Hearn. There's a legend at UVA that he was right there laying that cornerstone in 1817. Long story, he was not, but they're updating. So I I think there's a a real interest. Students don't know the story, including some of the U-Guides, but there's a real interest in changing that?
3: Um, I have to talk to them like every semester. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's always weird to hear these stories about the you guy because I'm like, uh, yeah. Um, I think this is an issue, a larger issue that uh, Professor Hurd really brings up. And this is a larger issue of branding. Um, I think it's happening. I teach a course on the history of African-Americans at UVA. Um, post 65. Last semester it was 200 students in a class. I turned away about another 100. And I'm teaching it this semester and it's like uh, I had to turn, it's like I can't do this. And it's about 140. And so I started teaching it in 2014. So since 2014 I've taught 800 students. Um, So the work is being done. I think the question is a larger question of branding. I think it's a larger question of um, is it getting out? And I think this is where I think that email does matter and understanding the various traditions. Um, I'm always kind of funny when I come to the law school, but the reason I come is, befo- is because of Clarence Kane and Leroy Hussell, particularly Clarence Kane. Clarence Kane, um, if any of you have ever seen the movie Philadelphia, that's a movie based on um, a plaintiff who was who was fired from his job because he had AIDS and he sued. Um, and it's based on two figures, and one of the figures is Clarence Kane. Clarence Kane was a double Clarence Kane was a part of that generation of African Americans, that trailblaze, the institution building generation, came here in nineteen seventy, got his BA from here, and then his law degree. Um, there's not a day that I teach Black Fire I don't kind of think about him. Um, his presence is like always there. And one of the things I was telling my students last week when we were talking about Clarence Kane, he sues Hyatt Services, um, he wins. At the time of his court case, he sits for dripping wet 100 pounds. And the things that I always think about is what did he learn as an undergraduate here? What did he learn as a law student here? that gave him some kind of strength to fight. He's my hero. He's the person I would quote. Now that's not censoring anybody, you quote whoever you wanna quote. Cause I'm pretty sure there'll be like an older black alum who'll say, why didn't you quote me? You know, that just. <laughs> it's the question of tradition, but it's also, there are many traditions here. There are a million traditions here. It, this place is 200 years old. Which tradition are you going to choose? To me, that's also at the heart of the battle. And we have to be careful not to also be intellectually lazy. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things to pick from, a lot of quotes. Um, a lot of people, you know, and I, and I understand what you were saying, this kind of great man narrative. And I think we have to problematize it. One of the things I do with my students is I say, we're not going to study like the first black person across the street. We're not doing that kind of like, no. We're going to study the history of generations, a particular kind of generation, and how they transform the intellectual, political, and social landscape. That's my approach, class by class, one by one. Um, but for me, it's a question of multiple traditions. And, and I think that's also at the heart of, when there's a crisis, what do you choose, to, who do you choose to quote? And see, that's when there's there also this question of a deep love for UVA. Somehow, I've developed a love for this university. But it has to do with the people that I'm studying. And that love just pushes me to go into the archives and do more to work. See, there's a dialectical relationship between love. So you also got to make sure you have people that have some kind of fundamental love. And that's why people don't really understand when they say a critique of somebody, oh, they don't love the university, they don't, no, it's much more complex. And then you also have to understand once you enter the public arena, anything can happen. And your words and everything you say can get twisted, and so you understand that. So I'm also protective of what we've tried to create. And I understand where sometimes that has to go into a public space. And sometimes the most important thing that I'm going to do is when I'm talking to my 200 students at, on Tuesday and Thursday from 11 to 12.30. Because there's, there's larger stuff going out there that actually has nothing to do with Jefferson. Yeah,
5: I was just wondering if you had uh, a comment on, I guess, so obviously, since you guys have been working on these sorts of things, how you think we should resolve issues like looking at like the Lee Park in Charlottesville, or even looking at like I'm from Richmond, so like Monument Avenue is like a huge part of Richmond and Richmond's identity, kind of mm-hmm. in the current day. But you know, what are some of the suggestions I guess you have for kind of resolving like an avenue that's you know Confederate generals and Confederate presidents that's so kind of such a huge part of this, Richmond's identity.
6: But it's so problematic in
1: you know who those figures are. <laughs> um, well, I'll you know, <clears throat> memorials is something I think that's very much on on all of our minds, especially um, at UVA and, and Monticello. Um, and I would ask you whether you know when those memorials were put up. Do you know? Right, which was the height of Jim Crow and segregation. Um, And I think those monuments are really important teaching tools for people to understand that these monuments were not put up during the Civil War. They were put up during Jim Crow. Um, And the mythology of the Civil War, the invocation of of that war as a way to shore up white supremacy in places like Richmond, is manifest in the creation of those statues. And I think if we're going to talk about telling this narrative fully and accurately, uh, we need to tell people what the context of the statues were. What function were they serving in that society? Um, Because I think it's really important that we use them to demolish myths.
2: And, e- and even the uh, the law that's causing the problem in Charlottesville is an 1889 law, right? And there's, there's a reason it's 1889. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm glad I'm not the mayor. I think this is going to be right. If you look at how communities do this, there's a lot of kicking of the can down the road. Form a commission, let's talk about it some more. Let's suggest contextualization, but then we have to make a decision about what contextualization looks like. Um, I'd love to see it happen. I I tend to agree that leave it in place, sink it in the ground, put up signage around it so that this history is talked about. But um, I think it's going to be years before we get there here or in Richmond.
4: I can add something. I mean, I was thinking about um, Claudrina's point about Jeffersonian fatigue. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. And I think I was thinking more like Jeffersonian shock. But then like, that we have a Robert E. Lee Park and statue, I, w- I thought I hadn't, like, moved across the country. I thought I'd gone in a time machine and moved back in time. And so there is a very, I just, I think maybe members of the community who have lived here, or this is more familiar to them, It's. it's not to say that this is the only factor that should be considered, but I think one factor that should be taken into account, in addition to, you know, historical significance and how we're recognizing that and how we're dealing with that also has to be the implications for that for now and for the future so what kind of community do we want to have do we want people to come to this community and feel welcome here and feel included and feel like this is a place where they want to live and have a family and raise children and you know because I think maybe it's under um, it's, it's under the radar in the, in the extent to which outsiders who are, are coming into this community, who, who would, we would think we would want, right, as a, as a intellectual hub, uh, are experiencing this, this space. And I think that's just something that we should have as part of the conversation.
0: Any other questions? Yeah.
6: Uh, so my question is, uh, as Midwestern came here and specialized in the Civil War era, uh, i a very big difference. Uh, between the Midwest and the UVA uh, uh, culture around the Civil War and what's being taught, uh, especially the public. I found one of the big uh, challenges is that it was very easy to discuss uh, you know, the complexities and the intricacies of the Civil War and how messy it was uh, in a 40 page article or a two hour tour or you know any of those longer form areas or a semester long class. But it's very difficult to get those ideas across and the sound bite to the general public for the, sort of the outward-facing uh, messaging. You know, I was wondering if you had uh, any comments to provide on how we can take this internal discussion, this inward-looking UVA, looking at Jefferson's legacy, and make you know, it turn to the outside where they don't, aren't necessarily reading our 40-page academic articles or still going on the two-hour-long tour.
2: I don't, I don't know that I have an answer, but I'm going I'm to wade into this gently. I'm, I'm struck by, I, I've at least been pleased in the time on the commission. Uh, people are generally, we've not had a lot of pushback to this general conversation about slavery. I am struck by having gone to some of the Blue Ribbon Commission meetings about Civil War statuary, how it's a, that's a very different scene, and there's, uh, I don't know if it's ignorance, willful ignorance, they haven't read the 40-page article, but uh, one of the meetings I went to, I was told very clearly by a woman next to me that in fact Lee had freed all of his slaves and Stonewall Jackson hated slavery. And I, I, don't, I don't know where you start the conversation there. So I, I think on slavery, if, if there's a moment, we're in a little bit better place to at least discuss it. And I'd like to be hopeful that that will get us to a uh, better understanding, right, we're fighting against this the, the lost cause mythology that whitewashes the war, removes slavery from the cause, and eliminates African Americans as a cause or participants in any way, shape, or form. And it's, pretty, it's a pretty powerful toxin. So I, I don't know when we get to that, but we, we've got to start
0: somewhere. Noelle, were you going to say
4: something? I'll just briefly. I mean, I think the reason that this isn't so complicated outside of this space is because, I mean, if you think about the way that Jefferson has talked about outside of this, I was just talking to my colleagues earlier about, you know, between the Broadway show Hamilton, right? Or if you think about just a lot of popular media, you know, a lot of sitcoms. I mean, I think there's just a way in which people, when they talk about Jefferson, they talk about Sally Hemings, and that's just how it is. And I think um, the Civil War, there's a lot of similarities in terms of people are able to have Really uh, honest and and these brief kind of soundbite conversations, right? So the problem here is more, it's it's, uh, regional in that there's this Civil War, you know, Robert E. Lee being from Virginia and Stonewall Jackson, and then at UVA, it's that, you know, Jefferson as the founder, to the extent that we are so invested in the notion of their exceptionalism and that we. Are only exceptional then by association, and to the extent that that's everything we're investing—that's all our eggs in that basket—it's impossible to have a more critical examination of these issues, and, and then to be able to have that kind of soundbite, you know, and and acknowledge it. Just I think the distance is what's missing, so we can't be so heavily invested as in those. Great leaders, or founding, you know, being that that that's somehow we're an extension of them. That's I think that's possibly the core barrier there. I, can I just oh, add no, one ahead. little thing? Sorry,
1: and I would add that another way of of, of I think trying to convey this um, to the public is to again try and turn the narrative upside down. And I think we've tried to do that by focusing on the members of uh, Jefferson's plantation, the uh, descendants, the Hemings' descendants, who fought in the Civil War as white men, (laughs) you know? Um, And to tell that story as an alternative to the kind of great man or mythologized Civil War narrative that's traditionally trotted out to the public. Um, And I think that gives the public pause, and they think about who actually was fighting for the Union who actually was fighting for the Confederacy? And what was it about? Um, and I'll just close by saying, uh, quoting Gary Gallagher, who uh, has one of my favorite sound bites, uh, when someone tells him that the Civil War is about states' rights, and he says, which state right? Uh, and he says, slavery, um, so. All
0: right. we have time for one more. more? Can you make sure you're missing sure.
7: that side of the room? Sure. Please. Yeah, so it, I have certain amount of, like, combination of Jefferson shock and Jefferson fatigue, so I, I hate to, like, go back to that, but I sort of that have to because when I was visiting here, I, uh, I met one of other student and we talked about, I, mean, I said, why do you want to go to law school after she asked me, and the first thing she said to me was, I'm a big fan of Thomas Jefferson, like, I want to go to law school here because I'm a big fan of Thomas Jefferson, that one I was mostly on the shock side. Um, the something that I've struggled with then is, because there is this great man narrative, I but I think there's a New York Times article that a while ago that was, you know, that I you know, found really interesting about, you know, isn't this is thing, Thomas Jefferson was unique. He wasn't just your average dude at the time who did that thing. But this is, we're talking about something that was uniquely bad. And there's a certain appeal to that because you're dealing with like this. This is a unique human being, kind of narrative. But there's also obviously this huge problem, which is, OK, sure, so w- what would be an OK level of owning human beings? or what would be an OK level of definitely reprehensible. Um, and then on the flip side also, if he is really bad, it shows that, like, oh you know, this wasn't actually ever settled. This wasn't cool at the time. Those people who, you know, he doesn't have living then doesn't sort of make it totally fine if he got these things. You know, that there was always a tension there. And I always come out of a powerful argument. And you see people from that era saying, this is awful. You know, that to me actually undermines the idea of, oh, it was cool, it was fine, everybody did this. And so I guess what I'm getting at is something that I struggle with an impression I have for you all is You know, where do you go? You just say, oh, no, no, this great man narrative is problematic for so many reasons. And what we really need to talk about is that slavery was about on the whole, like, you know, what this history we have to recommend. But at the same time, uh, where do you do that temptation to say, look, this guy was way worse. And also, is that even true? Because, you know, like, I don't know that much about Thomas Jefferson despite
4: being here. I'll go first probably because I have the least profound thing to say. But, um... Mm -hmm. So I think what, but what you hit on, and I think what I'm struggling with, what I think is most unique, and everyone else did a better job talking about this than I will, but the hypocrisy. And in terms of how we can learn that paradox, how does that inform things that are happening now? And for me, the lesson there in terms of the ways in which someone who was intellectual enough to write the Declaration of Independence, right, and who had writings about problems with slavery, not just for slaves, but even for the slaveholder. And at the same time, for his own best interest, continued to perpetuate this uh, slavery and and also had writings that, that fueled racism, right? And I think one thing we can learn from that is racism exists because it serves a purpose. And if you think about the purpose, I mean, I'm thinking about this a lot now in in a a capitalist society and with the politics that we have going on right now, um, and when things do feel like a zero-sum game, it's helpful to target groups and to make them inferior to the extent that that can advance other groups. And if you really think about racism and the roots of it and those at the top wanting to make sure that as long as those at the bottom are squabbling with each other over you know, perceived as superiority because of skin color, then those at the top can stay where they are, right? Racism can really maintain the status quo. So I think this notion that racism is really something that can be fueled by self-interest, and that that's something that we're contending with now, there's an opportunity to learn specifically from the hypocrisy about how someone can understand an institution as being wrong, and yet participate in it for self-gain.
0: We do have time.
8: Hi. Um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to make a
0: comparative comment on
8: the religious studies, and I study Latin America, and so it's just so, so interesting. I mean, part of the problem here is I think that the problem with empire in this, this notion of American exceptionalism that mm-hmm. is going on that makes it difficult to uh, square better, or circle square or whatever metaphor you want to use of you know Jefferson's uh, inconsistencies or hypocrisy. Um, and what I see in Latin America, especially in the former slave societies like Cuba and Brazil, is they're, they're not, first of all, they're much more sanguine about the sexual liaisons between slaveholders and the slave, and, and indeed that is, they pull that into their entire this is, how, this is this is literally birth of the like, This is us, Captain you, you know, and they're not, uh, you know, they don't have this puritanical kind of tittering, you know, kind of going on around that. So that, that's one thing. And also just the, the way they marry is, uh, they're much more comfortable talking about uh, slavery as, you know, as something as, as historical wrong as a as a tragedy, but also something that was definitive of the nation, rather than as some um, exception or stain, or something that we dealt with in 1865, yeah. or, you know, you know that, that here it's, it's something that doesn't really get talked about, you know, in any kind of sequential way in our kind of public school history, you know, for and also, next Friday, 4 p.m., UVA Chapel is the celebration of Liberation Day the liberation of slaves and the arrival of Union forces, March 3rd,
3: 1865.
0: So 4 p.m., next Friday. Thank you. Any other last comments?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think at the heart of it is that slavery was not a paradox. That the freedom of black people... Uh, many saw as a threat to white liberty.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so there's no, and, and, and one of the reasons we use terms like paradox or uh, hypocrisy or contradiction is that it, it keeps us sometimes from getting at the heart of the nation itself. Exactly. And the nature of American democracy and what it is and what it isn't, um, or the nature of a Republican democracy. right? Yep. Um, And so I, you know, yeah, definitely. Um, And so I think this even gets at African-Americans' relationship with Thomas Jefferson. They used the term contradiction in the 1800s and the 1900s, but the contradiction was the norm for them. but I, yeah, I mean, and I think there are a lot of historians, from Alan Taylor to Annette Gordon-Reed to um, Gerald Horn, who, in his 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 book Counterpoint to the Revolution, sort of says, you know, this was about slavery and maintaining slavery. So I think you know Edward Baptist, who talks about the centrality of, of capitalism to the making of the nation, the economic foundations of the nation. And I think you get that same thing if you go through American history and you look at something like convict leasing, and you think about the wonderful work of people like Talitha LaFloria, who's here, or Sarah Haley's book, No Mercy Here, where they look at the development of the economy of the South and say, look, convict, convict, lease, um, convict leasing was central to the making of Southern modernity. New South modernity, the roads we use, I mean, even the bricks that you see in Atlanta. Uh, So it's it's not a contradiction, but to have that conversation brings up larger conversations about work ethic, about justice, about, I mean, there's a lot, in bringing, in talking about that conversation, I think, and Nicole brings this, you got to confront a lot of other myths. Um, but yeah, I think you're. I think you de- I think you You're right. From you know, slavery to, to Jim Crow to um, unfree forms of labor, et cetera.
1: If I could just add on briefly, um, Professor Harold said something I thought that was really poignant earlier, which was that we need to think about that the fact that we live in a society that Thomas Jefferson couldn't imagine and it's not just Jefferson, it's the majority of white people in that time, did not think that African-Americans, whether they were slaves, whether they could free, could actually remain in this country. I hear a lot about Jefferson's uh, description of blacks as inferior, and I always say that doesn't get to the heart of the matter. The vast majority of white Americans couldn't foresee a diverse and inclusive society. They thought it would actually destroy their society. And I think that has to be the departure point for which we engage in some of these conversations because that's the core. That's what we have to understand.
0: Thank you very much. Please thank up.